0: This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Noel Durant. Noel is the new Executive Director of the Crested Butte Land Trust, a conservation organization that protects and stewards the ranches, trails, open space, and wildlife habitat of Colorado's Gunnison Valley. Noel took the helm of the Land Trust in early 2017 and he brings a wide variety of conservation experience with him into the new role. He's worked as a member of the interagency Hotshot Crew fighting fires across the American West. He's also worked for regional and national conservation organizations doing everything from managing large swaths of rural land to developing urban trail systems. Noel's resume speaks for itself, but what's even more impressive is his intense curiosity and deep knowledge around all things conservation. Whether discussing the history of the Gunnison Valley or the ideas of Wendell Berry, it's clear that Noel has a true passion for his work and a vision for the future of conservation in Colorado and beyond. His practical experience combined with abundant enthusiasm will allow him to continue and expand the work of Crested Butte Land Trust into the future. As listeners of this podcast know, Crested Butte is one of my favorite places in the American West, if not the favorite. Its ranching heritage, world-class recreation, and genuine community make it a unique and rare place in today's American West. In our conversation, Noel explains what makes Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley so special and how the Land Trust must balance the goals of such a wide range of various stakeholders. He talks about the history of conservation in the valley and where he sees conservation going in the future. We also discuss his time fighting fires throughout the West, how his early life and parents shaped his love of the outdoors, and lessons learned from his various roles in conservation. This is an excellent episode with lots of interesting information, so be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. I'm sure you'll agree that Crested Butte Land Trust is in great hands under the leadership of Knoll. Hope you enjoy. Meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that?
1: Well, I would say in my current job, I'd say I I work with the community and willing landowners to protect place. That's the essence of what we do here at the land trust and what I do as the executive director. Yeah.
0: So talk a little bit about Cresty Butte Land Trust and what what you guys do. First, talk about Cresty Butte, because I think a lot of people who listen to this, they love the West, but it's surprising how many people I talk to who have never been to Crested Butte, and like we were just talking about before we started recording, it's my favorite place anywhere, and I've been everywhere in the West, and this is my favorite place. So talk about Crested Butte and then the the work that you guys do here.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's an amazing community settled right in the Gunnison Valley, one of the the more remote counties, not the most remote county in Colorado, but it's... um it's a the, the town of Crested Butte is you know it's an old mining town uh, and and it wasn't a you know a hard rock mining town this was a coal town and uh you can still see the legacy of that and i think that sort of lack of immediate wealth of a coal mining town sort of kept this place a little a little on the fringe mm-hmm. longer than some of the other resort towns and it allowed conservation to come in before real estate prices really went through the roof. And, um, the, the immediacy of the, the heritage of mining, the, um, connection we have to our working ranches. I mean, as you come up the Gunnison Valley from Gunnison, um, I mean, you're just, you're in it, you're in the, the, the working world of ranches and you can see the operations happening, you know, when they're when they're haying, when they're moving their cows off their hay meadows and bringing them up to their, their public land allotments. It's a, it's a really unique place from that perspective of the connection to land and the, the working land aspect. And then the access to recreation is about unparalleled. Mm -hmm. It's in 750 miles of trails Mm -hmm. in the, in the immediate area, I'd say 20 mile radius of Crested Butte and, uh, it's a remarkable place. It's a, it's a community that has taken real intention to protect what makes it special.
0: So why do you think they were able to do that? Why do you think the folks in Gunnison Valley were able to do that compared to somewhere like Telluride, which is, I think is equally spectacular as far as scenery and access to, to recreation but it's as fancy as you can get. Well, same same could be said for Aspen. Mm -hmm. Um, So you, you mentioned it a little bit, the mining background, but are are there any, why do you think the
1: community was able to look that far ahead? Well, I think that uh, we were able to enjoy a, a a relatively long period of, of uh, this community not being uh, discovered. Mm -hmm. So the, and it was a a combination of the residents you've, and the the mines closed down in the early 50s so before the ski resort opened there was about 10 years where you had you had the mining families just barely hanging on you had the ranchers and there was really not much going on up here it was it was touch or go you know in terms of is this place going to become a ghost town and then the resort came in but the resort really you know it doesn't it didn't have at that point sort of the the esteem of these other you know big name places and so real estate prices stayed fairly low. Uh, you had sort of the the you, know, you could call them the, the hippies of the '60s that moved into town mm-hmm. um, and really gravitated towards what the, the sort of the the immediate surroundings of Crested Butte really valued the the amazing nature that is basically right on the town town's front door. Yeah, it is. And they they really stood up for that and. In the face of uh, development pressure, the, the town of Crested Butte, um, really I'd say the, the big turning point was probably in the, the late 80s when Colorado Fuel and Iron put the 3,800 acres that they owned, surra- they owned surrounding the town where the old mines were, mm-hmm. they put it on the market and uh, they approached the town of Crested Butte and said, hey, can you, do you want to buy this? 2.8 million bucks be yours the town had no money they couldn't bond for I think their bond limit was a million dollars and then they sort of saw the writing on the wall like oh my gosh we're we need to figure out a mechanism by which we can protect the open space that surrounds the town so they missed out on on buying what's now Trapper's Crossing oh okay You know all the 35 acre lots that surround town, and so they started thinking, what are ways that we can, how can we a find create a financial mechanism to acquire property, and who's the entity to hold these real property interests outside of the the town limits? Mm -hmm. And so the the town planner and local attorney and local you know community minded citizen said we need to we need to create a land trust. So, the, right about that time time that the town uh, uh, voted to in, institute a real estate transfer tax, mm-hmm. which at the time was, you know, 1.5% of any real estate transfer to value goes in open space, space conservation. And What year was all this? Or this was like approximately? 90, uh, 1989 to okay. 91 was when all this was happening. Got it. And... Um, so the real estate transfer tax was was enacted, and at that time, real estate prices weren't that high in town. Um, but the they said we need to move forward with this. What they they ended up creating the land trust. These this group of, of committed citizens, and uh, they started going out and making deals happen and protecting the Slate River wetlands that divide the town of Crested Butte from the mountain. Like when you're you, there's two distinct communities, you've got the the actual town with the old historic buildings, the the street grid network, uh, and then you've got this protected open space mm-hmm. that is a wildlife habitat corridor. You've got um, some of the most ecologically rich wetlands in the state just outside of town, and then as you get up to the ski resort, you get more of the of the more suburban development. Sure, um, and it, I think that really is a, an amazing distinction between other communities this this sort of ring of open space um, that does allow for public access but is also managed for wildlife it's managed for for ranching i mean the the mission of the land trust is to protect and steward open space for recreation wildlife ranching and scenic views in the gunnison valley to preserve its unique heritage and quality of life Mm -hmm. and um from the from the get-go, that's been the intent. So we have grazing leases on land trust property immediately outside of town. Some folks love it. Some folks would rather not have cows, you know, yeah. 20 feet out their backyard, but that's, you know, the essence of what makes this place different. Well, and that's what I have always admired about the Crested View Land Trust, is that you guys
0: are, you have to do a lot of different things because you're in this pretty small geographic area, whereas like, the Colorado Cattlemen's Land Trust. I interviewed Eric Glenn on this, on this oh, yeah. bike. He was the Eric's first awesome. one I did. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no. so, But he's got the whole state to work with, and he's got this very, you know, focused niche of working ranches. Where And then you've got some others, you know, around like in the foothills above Denver who are just working on the, that area. But you've got this very unique valley that has legit old multi-generational ranches, and then it's got... You know, 22-year-old to just moved here out of college because they want to ski and ride yeah. mountain bikes. And so you kind of have to be, how do you say, I don't know if this is the right um, phrase, but all things to all people. I mean, you kind of do. We do. And so could you talk a little bit about how you guys go about conserving land? Because I know you do it. You don't just do conservation easement. Sometimes you'll acquire land and you, you've got a lot of different ways you do it because you have to, yeah. um, because you have to be creative in this kind of small geographic area. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I I think a lot of people, the word conservation means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Yeah. And it, it, it almost doesn't mean anything these days because it can mean so much different stuff. So maybe just talk about what does conservation look like to you and Crested Butte Land Trust?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, conservation to me, um, it's all about conserving. It's about... Protecting what makes a place what it is—it's that sort of essence that, when you say you're from somewhere, that that somewhere is what we're trying to protect. That idea of uh, a community of a community in in relation to its natural surroundings, and so the Crested Butte Land Trust, in response to that idea of conservation, um, we have been focused not just on, on conservation easements that are primarily focused on private landowners exercising their their ability to restrict the rights to their individual property mm-hmm. uh, in perpetuity, but we'll go out and we'll buy property um, that can be used for, for public access, for recreation in places, can be better managed maybe brother's not the right word, but can be managed for, uh, for wildlife benefit. Mm -hmm. It really gives the land trust a lot of latitude in terms of how we manage these properties that are so close to town, which see so much pressure Mm -hmm. from, um, adjacent development pressure from recreational use. Um, it it just gives us the flexibility, um, to, to be responsive to these, you know, the changing and changing environment to the changing demographic of our community and that's been a core piece of our work for from the very beginning sure um and it's a, a challenge because we as a landowner that puts a lot more onus on us um we're not just sort of the the guardian of these these rights we are the guardian of this piece of ground with mm-hmm. real um, wildlife with livelihoods that are staked on it i mean we have grazing leases that if we didn't allow grazing on on our fee-owned properties it may not be economically feasible to keep ranching alive in the upper valley sure. and it's a part of our mission we have to make that happen so um the the fee acquisition piece is a really critical element of our work conservation easements of, are of course are the bread and butter of the, the private land conservation community and we certainly work on those where we have the opportunity and that's really the the working landowners that to keep them mm-hmm. to keep them here because we know that if, if we lose our if we lose our ranchers, if we lose that that part of our community, A the the, the culture really changes. And B, what replaces them is an open space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we're, we're going to be faced with more development pressure if we can't keep our, our ranchers, um, operating up here. And it's a big challenge for a community. As you said, this, this cultural divide that we have between sort of the upper Valley, uh, recreationally driven community and, um, the, the working landowners, the ranchers that are very much focused on that aspect of working on the land Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's been a, a bit of a challenge for me to I sort of sit in both camps. I've been a farm caretaker in the past. I'm a you know uh, an avid recreational user myself. and I think there's a an opportunity for the land trust to to be that bridge.
0: Oh yeah, there definitely is. We, we have to. Well, and I think you are. I mean, I know when you're in the middle of it every day, it's um, you know you, you're you're seeing some of the challenges, but from an outsider, that's what i admire about this organization is because i feel like you guys have been able to do that better than anybody and cuz the the mission of this land trust seems to really align with my personal values as well cuz i'm like you i like to go off and run for you know 15 16 hours in the mountains but then you know during the day i'm out working on working ranches in one way or the other mm-hmm. and so there's a huge overlap for me between the recreational component and almost like the, what some people would call the environmentalist component ranchers don't like that word but and then you know there's overlap between that world and the ranching world and there's a lot more overlap than people want to admit Yeah, you know and I, in my opinion ranchers are some of the best stewards of the land there are period and they have to be
1: if they're not they go out of business very yeah. quickly, and, and these are multi generational ranchers. You know, five generations here. If they if they weren't good stewards of their land, they wouldn't. Yeah, they they wouldn't, wouldn't be they would be business. No, and, they I can... mean it's
0: they know the land better than anybody. Um, you know, somebody yeah. say a mountain biker who goes on the same trail every every week for ten years, they're not even close to understanding no. that piece of land as much as a rancher would after a year. No, and so. I think there's a huge overlap there, and that's what I think you guys capture here. I mean, I know it's hard. I don't have the full appreciation for how hard it is, but I know it's hard. But I feel like you guys are—you should write case studies, like in business. Yeah. Case studies. They should do conservation sure. case studies because I think you guys really set the the tone for that.
1: And I, I think that's really the value of the the Gunnison Valley is that we've got this. We've got this example of how we've how recreation and ranching are coexisting in a very close space and uh, i think in the long term it is it's absolutely critical that we build um, a sense of community ownership and, and not the the, the the literal sense of ownership but i want the the residents of the upper valley the, the crested butte area to see a working ranch and say that's That's a part of my community I want to see here. And it's Mm -hmm. not just the scenic view aspect. It's the people Mm -hmm. that are working these properties, that are multi-generation invested in place, that those people are valued and esteemed for what they do. Mm -hmm. And if that means I have to drive 15 miles an hour and I'm 30 minutes late to get into Gunnison because, you know, a uh, ranch operator is driving their, you know, their cattle down one, Highway 135. All the better for it. Yeah. that's what we need to have to really make this case study a success. Sure.
0: Well, I think again, I, I just it's very obvious. I love Crested Butte. It's probably annoying people <laughs> listening, but I mean, I, when you compare it to other, you know, resort areas in the state, there's really no no comparison, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, obviously, it is a resort town. Real estate's expensive. But it is a real town. It is. Um, it's not a made-up Disney World kind of town like you see along I-70. Um, yeah, there, there's a place for that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's a place for that, and then there's a place for these these real communities, I think.
1: Yeah, and that's what drew uh, my wife and I to the Johnson Valley, was that real community and the intention that the community has taken on both sides of, of the coin. The ranching community, the recreational community, both folks rally around Protecting what makes makes this place so different. Yep. from these other communities.
0: So you mentioned you and your wife moving here, and so you are relatively new in this job, coming yeah. up on a, coming up on a year, and um, coming into your first hunting season. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It and, is. Uh, so I want to hear a little bit about you and how you kind of got here. How old are you?
1: I'm 31 years old. Youngster. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm getting yeah. ready to turn 40. I feel like an old man. <laughs> um, so you grew up in Tennessee. I did. So, how did any were there any um, experiences you had as a kid that led you towards this career in the outdoors, conservation? Because we'll talk about your resume because you've done a bunch of cool stuff. But have you always been into this stuff?
1: Well, I, both of my parents are avid uh, outdoor enthusiasts. From my earliest, or some of my earliest memories are them. They, they actually helped found um, a friends group for a natural area that was just down the road from where I grew up. And you grew so, up around Chattanooga. I did, yeah. I grew up uh, around Chattanooga on the Cumberland Plateau. Yep. And uh, would go out on trail maintenance days with him as a young kid, you know, getting packed in on their back. And, you know, I'd be throwing rocks in the creek while they're building a trail bridge or rerouting a trail section. And those were some of my earliest memories. And my, uh, both of my parents just loved being outside. Mm-hmm. Mom's an avid gardener. They're they're both artists. They were both art educators. Oh, really? And so they sort of brought this creative aspect to the outdoors Hmm. um i never really felt like i had limits in terms of of um what they were you know what they were willing to let me do yeah (laughs) i mean it was you know it could be one day working in the garden with my mom and you know she might have we might have you know hit a hit a a snake or garter snake or something and, and killed it with a hoe or something and she's like i like, can we like, can we dissect that? Can we, can we like, post and She's like, oh, yeah. So all of a sudden, in the middle of the garden, like, we're just, we've all of a sudden turned into a science experiment, sure. you know? and um, My dad was a, a, um, an avid amateur naturalist, so we'd go on hikes, and he would talk about the different forest regimes that we'd be walking through. Oh,
0: cool.
1: You know, sort of diving down in these sandstone coves where you've got these sheltered hemlock forests. And he would sort of be narrating this as we'd be walking along. And so that was from... You know, at an early age, that was my perception of the outdoors, and um, I was able to was very uh, fortunate enough to be able to spend a, a semester in high school in Western North Carolina. Okay. In a, a program that was focused on outdoor leadership and Appalachian culture. What was that? Uh, it was called the Outdoor Academy of the Southern Appalachians. Wow, I've never heard of that. It's a remarkable, remarkable place. In on, high school, you did. In that? high school, yeah, sophomore year of high school. I can't
0: believe I've never heard of that.
1: Because you know um, I'm from North Carolina.
0: So. All right. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And I spent I mean I spent a ton of time in that area.
1: Yeah. So right at the, you know, right at the gateway to Pisgah National yeah. Forest in uh, the Little River Valley, there's a summer camp campus and they turn into a semester school in the in the school season, school year. And um, the the connection to place that I I gained there, uh, we we would have weekly work days with local farmers. Where there is one farmer I won't forget it. He he actually had his uh his square bales bailed a little smaller uh-huh. so the high school kids could help throw yeah, them. Yeah. Uh, and he was the laughingstock of the, of the valley. For like, "Ansel, what are you doing with these yeah. tiny bales? And he was worried about our well being when sure. they're out there helping slinging hay. Um, and I, I just fell in love with this idea of place. Yeah. First introduced to Wendell Berry in that environment right Um,
0: when you said sense of place I thought Wendell Berry
1: (laughs) yeah I mean he's he's one of my biggest heroes um I mean talk about a a real principled voice for place sure gosh yeah incredible um so that was that sort of led me into the fact that I wanted to pursue a career in natural resources when I was at that program and so I really tried to focus my education towards that and Mm -hmm. ended up at uh at Clemson and studied natural resource management. And uh, my first semester was saw an opportunity to go work as an intern for the National Park Service. Yeah. And that was going to require me taking a semester off of school. At that point, I was like, "Man, I'm you know school is expensive. If I can work for a little bit and make a little bit of money, maybe I can do something where I'm you know offsetting my my living expenses while I you know sure. work for the summer." and Um, that brought me into the world of of, uh, wildland fire got it yeah
0: and so where have you done where have you worked in the wildland fire i've read that i I knew that you did that was there's some in colorado right
1: yeah yeah um i started um in the southeast at king's mountain national military park okay which is a revolutionary war battlefield right on the north carolina south carolina line and uh did a lot of prescribed fire management there and uh, the, the fire ecology of the southeast is fascinating. <laughs> I don't want to geek out on this. Do you podcast. know Connor Coleman?
0: Do you know him? No, I don't. He is a. Um, he used to work for Aspen Valley Land Trust, and he did similar work with TNC in North Carolina. Okay. And I actually interviewed him on the podcast, and he um, he did the same thing. He was like, I could talk about forest fire management oh, for for another three hours. Oh, we need to get you guys
1: together. <laughs> I, I would love that. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's so fascinating. The the um, the anthropological history of fire and using fire—it's—it's it's really remarkable. And not really, when the whole
0: thing about longleaf pines, don't they—they they need fire? They need
1: fire. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of a lot of um, upland forests across the Southeast are fire adapted too—the oak-hickory forests. Really? Are, yeah, chestnut forests. I mean, a lot of these these environments were fire adapted, okay. and um, uh, there's still an interesting culture of fire. And, and fire use in the southeast, I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at, um, there's a, a thing called the, the situational report that um, the National uh, Wildfire Coordinating Group puts out every every day. Okay. And you look at the number of fires that are happening in the southeast, and it's always off the charts because people are using it. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's legal or not, whether they're putting in their permits or not. So it's a, a fascinating world. but. While I was there at Kings Mountain, I got to travel west on two fire assignments. Okay. Um, one to uh, Sangre de Cristo's and yep. the Uncompagres. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that was my first fire assignment, and then ended up in Nevada a little later that summer, got it. Um, and was exposed to the Western world of, of fire, wildland fire suppression, and hotshot crews. And I was young and hungry, and I was on a crew that was a. It was made up of of a sort of a, a mixture of. Southern Wildland firefighters, all from different agencies, different walks of life, different ages. Mm-hmm. So it was very different than I would see a hotshot crew. Everybody was young, fit, on it, very structured. And I was like, I want to work. I want to do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I came back from my my those two assignments, and I told the chief ranger at the park. I was like, Chris, I want to work on a hotshot crew. Yeah, and he's like, All right, I'll see what I can do. Nice. And um, and then from there, I ended up in. Uh, working for the Alpine Interagency hotshot crew, one of two National Park Service hotshot crews in the nation uh, based out of Rocky Mountain National Park. Got it. And I did that for, for three fire seasons. So wow. four four total fire seasons, and I loved every minute of it. What was
0: the craziest thing you ever saw happen when you were doing that?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, all, all sorts of, you know, w- crazy fire behavior. But I, I, probably one of the most surreal moments was uh, – we were on a fire in uh, in Ketchum, Idaho, yep. in 2007. And we were cutting through, with chainsaws, hand tools, cutting through multi-million dollar landscape installations behind <laughs> resort homes to cut line and burn out right behind these multi-million dollar mansions. And it was this so, so surreal world because we were we have been on the road already on a couple of other smaller fire assignments, hadn't really showered. We show up and we're, you know, getting it, you know, punching in this fire line. And the homeowners are like out in the street having cocktail hour. That's <laughs> weird, like putting in this fire line. And we, I, I swear, we had never worked that hard in our life. We had this audience of people that were like, we, you never get that. You're always sure. way out, you know. Thirty minute helicopter ride in. There's no one around, so we actually had an audience to do our work. It was. It was. That was probably one of the more surreal moments. Um, and there were some real moments of tragedy too. Really? In that? Yeah. I mean, we. Uh, I had a good friend who we were on a, a fire assignment on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. He was a sawyer like me at the time. Chain What Does that mean? So we um, on the crew. You've got. You've got. Two basic divisions on a twenty-person hotshot crew. You've got your your saw teams, and they're the folks with the chainsaws that go through and cut all the vegetation out of a corridor, yep. so that the fire can't can't jump from vegetation to vegetation. And then behind them, you've got your um, your your diggers. You know, the folks using hand tools to dig in the actual line. Got it. So that line goes to mineral soil, so that there's no flammable material that's in this it could be 18 to 36 inches wide um, and that's with a hand crew and you can also put a bulldozer in there but the the saw crew comes through first uh-huh. and cuts open the corridor and typically that those are your um, those are your more experienced firefighters sure they're the the more uh, they're the, usually the the most athletic because you're carrying a 50 pound pack 25 pound chainsaw yep. For 16 hours a day, um, and you, when you come onto a hotshot crew, you're always put on the very back. So you're, you've got this line. And you call them your scrapes. The scrapes. The last scrape is the root chopper with the Pulaski, and he's coming behind everyone else. And he's just chopping, chopping all the roots out because those it. are flammable. And then you slowly work your way up through, through the ranks, through the line, mm-hmm. to where you're you maybe the lead scrape, and you're the one starting the cut it's yep. your responsibility that the line goes where it needs to go um, and then from there they, they usually you know pick the the young and hungry ones to jump onto a saw crew and swamp got you it you basically have two you have two crew two saw crew members on the team you've got the sawyer mm-hmm. there's one using the chainsaw and the swamper there's one moving all the material the chainsaw oh, and I see. cuts. and it's a grueling job I bet it is
0: wearing all that hot gear on top wearing of it
1: wearing all your gear carrying a bunch of material a bunch of it could be you know 24 inch rounds from a tree that you the sawyer just cut down it could be manzanita that's all tangled and you got to rip it out it's sure. it's physical work uh and they um that's sort of the you know the young and dumb ones that can yeah, yeah in yeah, that yeah. world but then the the chain it's a it's a really unique and team environment where you you've got to basically be the be right in super close proximity to one another. Okay. Because if you're far too far apart, the chainsawer doesn't know where the swamper is. I see. And it's this constant communication, this sort of intricate dance of where's the chainsaw in relation to where the swampers hands are, mm-hmm. and you're you're trying to talk, but you can't really talk because it's loud. You're running this this piece of equipment, and um, you know it, it, you really have to just build this sense of rapport and trust. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade that that environment for anything that that part of my my experience it was really remarkable are you
0: so when you would come off of those things like seasons over and you weren't doing anymore would you kind of get down in the dumps like like uh kind of missing
1: that that adventure oh my gosh yes I would and I I was doing that while I was in college so Uh I did have a so you jump back in I would a, jump back into college, uh, work for a you know it might be a full six month season it might just be a summer depending on the year and um, I would usually get thrown right back into back into school and I'd have something to, to sort of distract me sure um, but there was one season, my first fire season, yeah I, I sort of came out of that like, wow, how do I decompress yeah. from this world uh, and Uh, You know, the next few years, it was a little easier, but that first year going from sort of that adrenaline charged and also very uh, tight knit community back into the regular world was a challenge.
0: People who listen to this podcast a lot are going to be so sick of hearing me say this, but there's this book by Sebastian Younger Tribe. Have you read it? I
1: did. I recommend that book
0: all the time. I give it to so many people and I think about it multiple times a day, every day. And that's not an exaggeration, but what he talks about with sense of purpose, and since a community, um, it's, I, I just think there's nothing more true than that. Yeah. And um, I've never experienced anything like like the f- forest fire, but like I've been on some climbing trips, like on Denali and Aconcagua. And you go out for three or four weeks with these people and you, you know, you're, you're on this mission to, to get up this mountain. And in the end, it's it's not doing anybody any good. Like Yvon Chouinard, I heard him call it conquistadors of the useless. That's what mountain climbers <laughs> are. So it's not like I think it's anything noble. But but you are building this bond with this community of people, and you're on a rope with them, and they're you know if you fall in, you're expecting them to catch you. Yep. And you're focused on this goal, and it's dangerous. And I remember whenever I I did I took me two times to do Denali, and both times when I came home, I was just like so kind of. The daily BS just, uh, I didn't have much patience for it. And my then fiance now wife wouldn't, uh, wasn't very happy with my attitude. When I came <laughs> home. So I couldn't imagine how it is after doing something like that, where it's really intense stakes are high. There's a, a very great purpose to it. Um, in that book even talks about people come over from the peace corps and they have a hard time readjusting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think one, one aspect of, uh, Of the fire world is that you know it's it's temporary Mm -hmm. you know it's six months and honestly by the end of that six months you're worn so so thin that you know you're you're ready for you're ready for a break but also when you're worn that far down it's a little easier to you know sort of yeah get down in the dumps yeah and and miss that you know that sense of community that camaraderie yeah
0: um you mentioned uh some tragedy is that something you do want to talk about yeah, I'll talk about yeah. it.
1: I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't have any super close friends that uh, that perished in, in wildland fire, but I was um, on fire assignments where where, where death occurred. And uh, um, you know, I was mentioning my my friend earlier who uh, was a Sawyer as well in the North Rim. He was on a, uh, a chainsaw and was cutting an aspen snag that was on fire. It's something you regularly do. But um, he had checked the fuel on his saw just uh, maybe 30 seconds before cutting that tree down, and he had some fuel vapors mm-hmm. on, his, on his chainsaw shafts. And he lit into the tree with the, with the saw, and out came this burst of flame, and his legs went up in flames and came running out, and we, we tackled him and patted him out. Uh, and he got flown as precaution to a burn center uh, just just south of the Grand Canyon I can't remember exactly where it was maybe Flagstaff and um, we were you know we were all kind of spooked by that and then not two days later there was another medical incident on, a, on that fire where uh, another firefighter had to be medevaced out via helicopter and there was a mid-air collision between two helicopters and everyone perished what year was that uh, that was in 2000 I think it was 2008
0: I feel like I remember and hearing it was tra- about that. it was
1: so tragic. Um, yeah, aviation incidents were the most common. We we were on a fire in the Trinity Alps uh, up in Northern California, super rugged country, a lot of helicopters shuttling people in and out. It was our last day of a 14-day assignment. So you work typically on a, on a fire assignment. It's 14 days, 16-hour shifts, and then you get two days of paid rest and relaxation, R&R. Um, and we were on day 14. We were prepped to get flown out of this fire we're pretty remote in um and we're listening to radio traffic coming out of the air base and there was a uh hella repeller who was doing a, a certification repel something just wasn't right with his equipment and he fell 200 feet and we we listened to the whole thing on the on the radio and and the medical traffic and uh yeah i, I mean we they, that that same crew had just flown us in you know not not two weeks before, and
0: uh, that's uh, yeah. It just shows you how serious it is, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds it sounds real cool and romantic and all that kind of thing. But when you really start thinking about the consequences and how many variables there are and how many moving parts, um, I mean, that's just, there's a lot of dangerous stuff involved. Even in the most control, you know, fire and chainsaws. Yeah. I mean, there aren't many things more dangerous than those two together. Yeah. They say commercial tree trimmers is one of the most dangerous jobs you can have. Oh, I- I can imagine. Yeah. And um, that's what Sebastian Younger, the guy that wrote uh, Tribe, when he was writing Perfect Storm, he came, the idea came to him when he was laid up in the hospital because he was a commercial tree trimmer and he basically cut his leg, almost cut his leg off. And he was like, I wonder what other dangerous jobs there are. That book, Fire.
1: That was yeah. my first Sebastian Younger book I read. That's It was a good about one. dangerous jobs. Yeah, I need uh, to read that again. Uh, and they talked about hotshot crews in there. And I read that, oh, maybe freshman year of high school oh wow and uh i was yeah uh my dad had a copy um i think i still have that copy.
0: I've, I've still got it at home i need uh, to reread it
1: yeah it's a it's a it's dangerous work but it is i uh, absolutely rewarding and it's something i would i would recommend to anyone that since s- civil service i mean you're, sure. you're really out there for the country you really are doing your duty for your nation um and regardless of of um, you know, of, of course, there's all sorts of elements of fire suppression. Is it right for the ecology of, of the Rocky Mountain West? But we're sort of faced with this reality of it's where we have to be. Mm-hmm. You know, we, um, you know, 75 years of fire suppression have made it up. Yeah. Inevitable that we have to, you know, go out there and, and, and work on it. And a lot of my good friends are still on that on that hotshot crew. And I mean, I, you'll be friends with those guys for life, for life. And yeah. I have the utmost respect for the guys that have put in 10, 12, 25 years in that world. It's, it's truly remarkable. They're, I mean, they're
0: basically like world-class athletes. to yeah. be. I mean, they're
1: like professional athletes
0: to be able to do that kind of hard physical work that long. Yeah. I mean, that's I could, I could keep asking questions about this the whole time. <laughs> we'll do a part two where we just talk about this. Um, so you did that for four seasons. Then what was next?
1: Well, uh, really what took me out of that world, I was, I had every intention of trying to go jump, be a smoke jumper. Uh, but I was on a fire in the, uh, in the Trinity Alps. It was that fire that I came home or came back to the, the crew rig, the truck. We don't have cell reception and I checked my phone. And it turns out my, my dad had had two heart operations oh. while I was out in the, you know, out in the sticks and I didn't know it. And so, um, that sort of made me rethink how I was, you know, how I was living my life, what family meant, Uh uh, what my responsibilities as a son are. And uh, so at the end of that fire season, I I moved back to Chattanooga. I had every intention of going to grad school, but this was in the height of the recession. Uh, I was like, there's no way I'm going to land a job, so I'll just apply for grad school. It was in that process. And um, a local land trust uh, was... uh, looking to hire a land manager in chattanooga and so i i applied i met the uh you know the, the folks that were uh working for the lula lake land trust at the time and uh they they thought i had the qualifications to jump in and do it I, at that point i would never operated a tractor i'd certainly done a lot of other manual labor in terms of natural resource management but uh there were some aspects of that job that were a stretch. That's good.
0: That's what but, all done, yeah, exactly. you want. Know? Exactly. I mean that's that's
1: how you get better. Yep. And so I uh I, I chose to forego grad school and went to go work for the, the land trust as their land manager and spent a bunch of time on a tractor learning what private land management and private land conservation really looked like. Mm-hmm. And uh the story of that land trust was pretty unique. It was a, a family that on the the, the father's deathbed He he founded the Lula Lake Land Trust and said, I want to take these 500 acres, this amazing Cumberland Plateau plunge pool and 85-foot waterfall, and I want to make this for community benefit for research and watershed protection. And uh, so it was my job to maintain that property. And through that, worked on numerous other projects, including some uh, trail management and planning projects and involving local uh, local state park, and conserve property. And, uh, had my first exposure to national conservation organizations working there, local foundations that were focused on the environment, and um, that really just wet my appetite for more of the of the the land side, the the planning, the real estate, mm-hmm. the the relationships that have to be built to make to set the stage for all these other aspects of conservation you need to have a, a willing landowner you need to have uh, you know professional um, conservation entity that can that can step in and, and help make these transactions happen and that really got me thinking more about that side of, cool. of conservation uh,
0: And so from there how, how long did you do that
1: I did that it was almost four years okay
0: and then on to Trust for public Land. Yeah. Right. Exactly. exactly. So, t- talk a little bit about them and, and what what they do in general. Yeah. And then what you did with them.
1: Yeah. So, the Trust for Public Land is a national conservation organization, the second largest behind the Nature Conservancy, and they are focused on um, creating parks and protecting land for people. It's all about the. Um, actually, my wife was just telling me about this concept, new conservation, this idea of conservation in relation to to. Uh, The human world, and they're very focused on providing uh, land for people. So they were uh, started out as a a key partner with federal uh, land management agencies as an acquisition specialist, going out and and establishing uh, or increasing wildlife refuges, adding to national monuments, parks, national forests, Um, and then they have they have been also focused on urban. Open space for people, urban land for people, and parks and green space. Um, one of the first projects for them was just across the Golden Gate Bridge from from San Francisco. So this urban world—it's basically this organization with these the uh, the same mission, but in very different mediums. Big iconic landscapes and close to home parks.
0: I think you need both. You know, I, I mean, you both. definitely do because in talking with different conservationists on this podcast, and then just in my own opinion. I'd say more times than not when you're talking to people involved in land conservation, you say, what will help with land conservation? They say, get more people outside. Take kids outside. Without a doubt. And, you know, most people, you know, in the city, for better or for worse, they, they may not have the resources, or not most, but a lot of people in cities may not have the resources to drive up the mountains every weekend. And so having these open spaces is extremely important to, yeah. to kind of wet people's appetite for the natural world, which leads to, you know... Getting in the big mountains, which leads to just caring about the places, which is what leads to
1: conservation. Without a doubt, when, you're, when you are in the natural world, when you have that immediate connection of you in this environment that's you know, not in your living room, it's, it's outside, it's this sense of wild, it is absolutely critical. And we, um, that urban work is, is a complete necessity towards protecting the wild places. You got to have both, and so that was my job at the Trust for Public Land. I was actually working on the the urban land conservation side. I was a, a, a program manager for um, a program in the city of Chattanooga, and uh, we worked real closely with the with the city to plan out uh, how they can strategically invest in green space. Mm-hmm. And one of my key projects was a twelve mile greenway corridor that followed along a local. Um, uh, Fairly significant tributary to the Tennessee River, um, and building this, securing the access, working with landowners.
0: So you had to get easements from private to, landowners. Yep,
1: get okay. easements and then work with engineers and uh, architects to design this this pathway, and then actually get it built. So wow. sort of. Uh, that's partner. a
0: real estate phd right there <laughs> yeah. you know you could have gone to grad school and you wouldn't have learned a damn thing compared to what you learned <laughs> and all these things you know that's the truth that's the yeah. truth and it and it also is because you're willing to stretch yourself you know jump into a
1: situation where you might not really know how to do it but you figure it out yep that um, was i mean i got thrown into basically we had a fu- defined budget for this stretch of greenway and we basically realized all right uh no, you're going to have to be a general contractor for this. <laughs> so it was a huge learning opportunity. And, and at each of those steps, that's, that stretch has been just so incredibly rewarding to come out of your comfort zone.
0: So you worked on these huge landscapes, public lands, um, fighting fires. Then you worked on a big piece of private land, maintaining it and, and stewarding that piece of land. Mm-hmm. Then you worked in urban areas on small but very important pieces of open space that's pretty much the whole spectrum so i mean it's kind of a random a weird question but is there any what did you learn is there any common thread that connects all that or any lesson you took from all that um i mean what what did you take away because you obviously took something away from all that because it got you this job leading this organization Mm -hmm. but is there kind of a central lesson to it all or
1: well i think it at every at every turn i have found that being community driven is the absolute necessity to to make work happen. If it's on the fire crew, if you're, you know, I, I had experienced a couple of different leadership styles, and um, the leader that I respected most in that world was very much focused on inclusive community education, bringing bringing the crew along, bringing everyone up. Um, on the the private land side, you know, we had this resource and the community wanted to use it and we had to really be focused on again what are the community needs, what are the what's the capacity of the organization to manage this recreational use. And it was very much I, and i I've, I saw I was responsible for some pretty key missteps in terms of community engagement. And we had a couple of projects that got killed because we didn't reach out. We didn't inform people on on why the Land Trust was stepping in to this one specific Mm -hmm. project and Trust for Public Land the same thing if we're working in predominantly underserved communities on a lot of the projects if you're um, these park um, and greenway and open space projects if we if we don't bring them into the mix and make them feel like this space is their own if you've got some ownership in it the park is not going to thrive it's going to it's going to languish no matter how much money you put into it or the other side is if you don't build Community ownership of the folks that are there now, they're more likely to get displaced True. by folks that see the opportunity and see that, oh, this is a desirable place to live. Yeah. So, and then uh, coming from there into the role of an executive director for a, a local land trust, we have to be focused on, on this aspect of being an inclusive and, and inviting organization. Our mission has forever in it yeah forever it's, it, forever it's when you i don't know of any business plan that you've done forever i mean you know? like, <laughs> I, you know,
0: I went to business school and we do these pro formas you know um, forecasting out to, to, to value a company and even those would only go out five years and they're like even then you don't know yeah so um i mean where we are right now no, nobody you know on a national level nobody would guess two years ago this would no. be and so, yeah, forever is a very long time.
1: It's a very long time, and we have we have to have this community viewing the land trust as their land trust, as like that. This is a an integral part of what makes this place special, and that we value them doing what they do, and yeah. that is a it's a huge task. It to, is. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the biggest common thread. And I mean, I mentioned Wimblebury earlier, and I mean, I just take such i mean inspiration from from his idea of of, of a of, of community connected to place and um, i mean I, between wendell berry and aldo leopold those are you know some of those they i i read them both at a time it was very impactful for me mm-hmm. and uh i'm absolutely thrilled that i get to be in a position to 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 be very much in that same vein sure of, uh uh Forwarding, forwarding this idea of place um, in a community that that sets an example for the state, for, I, I think this is a place of national significance, honestly. It is. And uh, I can't believe that I get to do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so we've already been talking for 48 minutes, which is, I could I could keep asking questions, but I, I'll give you a break here in a minute. Um so, where do you see the land trust going in the next, say, 10 years? Um, you know, you, you guys do so much and you, you, you approach land conservation in a million different ways. But kind of where, where do you see the future of land conservation in general and then the future of land conservation for Crested Butte Land Trust?
1: I think that in, in the next 10 years, uh, the Crested Butte Land Trust really needs to, we have to focus on this idea of the, the bridge between the working landowners and our recreational users. I mean, the, the average age of a rancher in Colorado was, this was a couple years old, it was 57. Mm-hmm. And so we're sort of coming up on this on this period of these ranchers, if they the next generation doesn't see a future in ranching, then we're going to see a huge turnover in some of these working ranches that aren't protected. And we need to get the buy-in of our community to have... Again, like I said, the, the value of the working ranch, the people that are connected to, to the land in that way, that's one of the key goals of this organization is to, is to keep this agricultural base alive and thriving in the Gunnison Valley. Um, and that's on, on this one aspect. The other side is, is we've got this, and that's really future acquisition, land protection projects, working with new landowners, building trust towards these conservation easements. Mm-hmm. Um, the other challenge that we have in the next 10 years and opportunities, Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley has been discovered. I mean, we, have, we have seen an exponential increase in recreational use on our, on our trails, on our forest roads, on our rivers. And the land trust really has to step forward and decisively bring together the key stakeholders to make a cohesive management plan work for the lands that we protect. Mm-hmm. We can't do it alone. We can't act unilaterally. We know the the complexities of, of river law, the complexities of, of adjacent landowner land management. We have to bring everyone to the table to figure out how we manage use of our lands so that we don't lose our wildlife and we don't lose our ranching heritage because of recreational pressure. Yep. Um, and I think those are two of our, uh, in the next 10 years, they're going to be two of our key focuses. And we've got really great staff here at the Crestview Land Trust focused on the stewardship, the land management side. And um, we've got some really great advocates and leaders who are helping us on the acquisition side, helping make these connections and and think critically about uh, the future of working lands in the Gunnison Valley.
0: Well, I think this whole public lands fight that's going on right now is a great example of how sides that may be on opposite ends of the political spectrum can come together because you know there are a lot of as hardcore right wing people as you can get who on who, um, who maybe enjoy you know stereotypically on the hunting side and then there's far 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 left people who may be on the hiking or mountain biking side, but they've all come together to fight this Um, Effort to sell off public lands. And so I think the cool thing about conservation is it is a nonpartisan issue. And um, it's that example I gave is a little different because the ranchers aren't involved, but I think there's a huge opportunity here and there. That sets a precedent for being able to bring these two groups that on the surface may look kind of different, but they share almost all the same values as far as when it comes to land. Mm -hmm. Um, That's great. Well, I'm excited to to see how things sh- shake out because seems like you're off to
1: a great start. Oh, thank you. And I'm I've got a lot of great advisors and mentors who are are helping me think about about this this work. You know, and um, it is it's a it's so remarkable the the uh, the different sides of the coin that come to come to conservation. I mean, um, on the one hand, I mean it's. The ultimate expression of private property rights, which which hits home with the real conservative users, uh, conservative landowners who say, yeah, I can make the decision mm-hmm. that I'm giving up these rights. It's my choice.
0: Yeah, my land.
1: My land. Um, and, and then you've got the other side where, especially when you talk about uh, community conservation, community-driven work like we have in the Slate River Valley, that conservation can provide these avenues of connection, can... Um, provide a glimpse of, 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 ranching, of wildlife habitat for folks that didn't grow up with that and they could come to love it and come to, to realize that even if they're not from the Gunnison Valley, just how important it is to have these, this immediate wild mm-hmm. to them. And yeah, it's, it's a remarkable opportunity it is
0: it's huge and you're the man for the job <laughs> Thank you. Um, there are a few questions I've been asking everybody I have on the podcast yes. I call them quick questions but sometimes they, they lead to other conversations but um, it's been fun to compare and contrast the answers yeah. you've mentioned Wendell Berry and Le- Aldo Leopold are there any other are there any books that you have been very important to you um, and they don't have to be related to conservation or ranches just books that you've enjoyed you mentioned um
1: Tribe, by younger. Yeah. What, any other good books? Um, I was really impacted by a book called Shop Class of Soulcraft. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. I, I mean, it's older, book. but uh, yeah. I I really I mean not super old, but I, I read it
0: in like oh nine maybe. Mm-hmm. I love that book.
1: Yeah. I I you know coming out of uh, out of the crew mentality, I really gravitated to 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 what uh, yeah what what tenets were were put out in that book mm-hmm. um and I really pass that book along to a lot of folks as well.
0: For people who haven't who haven't heard of that book, it's about a guy and he's a highly edu- overeducated kind of philosopher kind of guy, a college professor yeah. who who runs a motorcycle repair shop, and he talks about the importance of physical labor, hard work, problem solving, and how it's kind of missing in our day to day life. Yeah. That's a yeah, that's a great book. Any yeah. others? and I'll put links to all these in the. Uh,
1: on the webpage. page. Um, oh, um, Winner by Rick Bass. I have not read that. Um, it might be actually called Winner in Montana. But uh, Rick Bass uh, moved to the Yak River Valley in the early 90s and uh, was a Winner caretaker. He still lives up there, actually. Winter caretaker. I read that right before my wife and I moved from Chattanooga, Tennessee, to the Gunnison Valley cool. nice. <laughs> to sort of prep myself for what winter looks like in, in the high country of Colorado. And um, that I really enjoyed that book. Um, we were farm caretakers in the southeast, so it was uh, an interesting combination of uh, you know this this the the role of caretaker in this new environment. Sure, uh, I'll check
0: that out. I haven't I haven't even I don't even think I'd heard of that. Good, that's exactly why I asked
1: um, do you have any favorite documentaries? Oh, this is going to sound trite, but uh, Alone in the Wilderness. Yeah, I mean, I I just can't get enough of that. Yeah. I mean, talk about the ultimate badass, <laughs> Dick Brannicki. <Brenneke is>. Yeah. <laughs> my wife, if she listens to this, she's going to smack me upside my head because I'm always talking about it. But it, it's just it's an incredible story.
0: Okay, yeah. cool. I'll put a link to that. Yeah. Um, do you
1: have a favorite location in the West? I do. And it's actually a place I've never made it to. I've never actually been there. But it's the fire lookout on Heaven's Peak and Glacier National Park. Cool. My grandfather was a fire lookout there in 48. Wow. The lookout was only open for three years. Um, He came back from that and married my grandmother. Um, But it was a place that my family had always, like, talked about. Like, oh, when your grandfather was the fire lookout in Glacier. And I saw photos of him up there. Um... You know, with mountain goats surrounding the the lookout. And uh, my wife, then uh, fiance, uh, worked in Glacier. And we planned a trip to hike up to the lookout, which has been shuttered since like 51. Okay. It's right in the heart of the McDonald Creek Basin. Okay. Prime grizzly habitat. There's no trail to it. I mean, it's all just grown up. Um, And so we planned this. We planned to get up there. So we left early promptly, you know, there was actually uh, the folks, the conscientious objector who built the lookout during World War II, Mennonite man, his family came back and did some stabilization that summer. So there was actually a a sort of like rough cut path, apparently, that went up there. We never found it on the way up. We found some flagging and promptly got lost in this alder thicket for seven hours (laughs) in in grizzly Habitat where... We find ourselves like sort of stooping through these maybe four-foot tunnels. <laughs> yelling "Hey, bear. Yelling him. "Hey, bear for, for hours on end going horse. And both of us had sort of resigned ourselves like, we might round a corner. We might pull back this brush. and Yeah. Face there, face. They, <laughs> there he is or there she is with two cubs, and, you know, that might be the end of us. Um, so we didn't make it that day. We got turned around at dark. We hit a cliff line, and uh, we didn't make it up there. And uh, so we bailed. Yeah. Um, and on the way back down, we found the we found the the flag line. We're like, we can't we didn't have time to go back up. My wife went back the next weekend. Oh really? And she went up there. She's been to the lookout. You gotta get up there. I do. I do. That's cool. Um,
0: so you're about nine months in here in Crested Butte. What is your favorite trail
1: or hike here in Crested Butte? And I've I've really enjoyed so I'm a I'm a bow hunter. I'm pretty terrible bow hunter pretty mm-hmm. new to it <laughs> but um i've really enjoyed exploring the uh the raggeds yeah. i mean um you know either going in uh yule past the yule valley is just <laughs> incredibly beautiful or the other side of the ruby range checking out some of the high basins up there there's some just stunning country yeah um and on the other side of the ruby range you've got this interesting cultural aspect of running into the the basque sheep herders who are back there and and sort of seeing the you know the history and legacy of all the hurting that's happened you know you see you know i'm not one for defacing natural resources but looking back and seeing some cursive script in the date of you know 1895 yeah. is pretty interesting yeah pretty amazing yeah um so i would say the the, the ruby range um is, is has been near and dear to me over you know my time here and then uh yeah, so I'd say you know uh, Silver Basin Trail has been a, a lot of fun, and and not just on the trail, but going off and, and hiking up into those high basins and on those. Ridge and you've lines.
0: hit a lot in one summer out here, <laughs> as you should. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: Uh, I mean, we've talked about it a lot about this idea of um, if you're not you're not pushing yourself into uncomfortable scenarios and not just the physical scenarios or like the the professional scenarios but pushing yourself emotionally like to really be in a uh, a place of of tension and of of trial where you feel like you're not capable of it and you have to rely on something bigger than yourself be it community or, or be it your faith uh that's been probably the most impactful. Some of my closest mentors at times where I was just like, oh, should I Should I go for this? Like, without a doubt. Yeah. You won't reject it you, or you won't regret it. Yeah, Go. I think that's great advice. I mean,
0: if you look at all the people I admire, I, I love, almost obsessed. My wife gets annoyed how much I talk about Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, strenuous <laughs> life and that, that yeah. was his deal. I mean, just yeah. push, push, push. When he was a kid, they said... You don't. Your heart doesn't work very well. You need to just. Your life is going to be one of maybe a college professor sitting around writing letters all day. He said, "Nope, I'd rather die than do that." <laughs> and so he went full speed, lived it out sixty years. He said he was going to die when he was sixty, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last, next to last question: If you could make a request of the people listening to this, and it's just people that love the American West in one way or the other, So a lot of what you're doing. It's just a wide variety of. Is everybody from ranchers to artists to architects, um, athletes, kind of the full spectrum. Um, but they all love the West. Is there some words of wisdom you would give them, something you would ask of them?
1: I would ask of them to make an intentional effort to to meet the other side of the coin, to meet, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, from there, from their value system, from there. What they value in the American West, and they see someone who's valuing something else, to make a connection with them, to sit down and talk about why they value what they do, and, and why do you, you know, why do you choose to be here? Why do you choose to invest in in the West? Uh, that's what I would ask. So I think we need we need more of that dialogue and more of a chance to make those personal connections across uh, across the ideologies that. Present in the American West.
0: I think that's excellent advice. Um, so, how can people find out more about Crested Butte Land Trust? You, how could they volunteer if they want to? Yeah. They
1: give you a lot of money, <laughs> That would be excellent. <laughs> yeah, we are a charitable nonprofit, so every gift is tax deductible. Uh, uh, yeah, the Crested Butte Land Trust, we have a website, cblandtrust.org. Um, we're also on Facebook. I think we have a fairly active Instagram feed of some photos of, of the lands that we protect and steward. Um, you can also swing by our office. We're right in downtown Crested Butte. I um, love this office. Yeah, it's a great spot. We have a, you can come sit in my office, and you've got a great view of Mount Crested Butte right oh, out yeah. the window. This is nice. Um, so, yeah, please come by uh, and, and stop in, and, and I'd love to talk. Conservation in, in the Gunnison Valley. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Ed.
0: Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no